Hello, little helpers. Last week, we ended on a bummer of a note. Men are in crisis. There's no one to date. And there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to let them sink further and further and further until life is a catastrophe. So that's why we decided to bring back Jared Glenn, who can give us a little bit of hope and a little bit of optimism. Jared, introduce yourself, please, and tell us a little bit about your background working with boys. Thank you, Jackie and Kibbe. Uh My name is Jared Glenn. I am a program specialist with the Old Stars Project, uh, which is a national nonprofit that works with young people and their development from poor and underserved communities. Uh, around the country, but I work specifically with the New York and New Jersey uh, team. Uh, in addition, I am a full-time writer, and that's screenwriter, playwright, and novelist, uh, as well as an essayist. And I am a father of a 14-year-old uh, boy, which is, I believe, more relevant to the discussion that we're that we're about to have. But I but I also get to work closely with young people, particularly young men, around all over the country around their development. So I have a unique uh, sense of what I and strong thoughts on what I think young men and boys need relevant to the discussion that you all were having in the, the episode that I listened to before, which was a great listen. And I re-listened to it uh-huh. before this, but I actually was one, I don't know how many men are listening to it, but I actually was really enjoying it because I was just glad that women were having that conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, you had a big, so Jared is our first repeat guest. So I don't take that honor. (laughs) When you were here before, you were telling us about, you know, for your, through your writing, you had a Mm -hmm. pretty cool project that was still kind of undercover, but you have since become public Mm -hmm. about it. Can you just tell us about that briefly? Yeah, sure. Uh, Two, two projects that have now gone public since then. The one that I was working on while I was uh, here last, and I'm honored to be the first repeat. Yes, I didn't know that until (laughs) this moment. Um, No pressure. Uh, I have, I had a play that was a part of the 1619 Projects um, play festival in Dallas, Texas, at the Bishop Ford Arts Theater. I was one of eight national playwrights chosen among hundreds of submissions. Uh, so I wrote a play called The Repast, which was about a family struggling with the death of their matriarch and how they coped with the loss, while also the surprising revelations of her will. Uh, the 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 criteria were that it had to be a short play, 16 minutes or less, and couldn't start more than four characters. But I have now since turned it into a full length, uh, a full length play due to the resounding response that I got to it. In addition, a play that I just got into pre-production called Bold and Kennedy, which I'm co-writing with my writing partner, Jackie Saylor. It's about the friendship and relationship between James Baldwin and Bobby Kennedy during the 60s. Um, and then my first my first novel titled TPD, my first romance novel will be coming out in December. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that so was really just... I want to, I want to see all of these and read all these. So you have to send yeah. us. <laughs> so, so Absolutely. Cool. Like... <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. A, a little, actually a very known fact, I think for anybody who knows Jared is that you love romance and you mm-hmm. have a particular historical focus and interest, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I love well, my favorite time period is the French Revolution, and second to that is the Dark Ages. But I love romance across all of human history. So, ancient Ireland, ancient Celtic love stories are my favorite oh. of the like of the genre of which romance is one of the oldest. You know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, 
what gets girl is one of the oldest stories in the history of mankind. One of the first stories of mankind. And I figure if a story lives that long, then it's probably important. So I, I like to take on the honor of telling those stories now. Mostly I just wanted to brag about you through making you talk about your career. But I also think it, it's sort of relevant in that, you know, you've got, you're like this big dude, you're this former boxer, you've got this deep voice and you're like into romance, you know, I mean, it's like it's sort of embracing the complexities of masculinity and not being stuck into some sort of stereotype. Thing. Yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely thank my, uh, my upbringing for a lot of that. Uh, my dad was in the military and was very and is very introspective and thoughtful. And he always imparted on myself and my brother to not only rely on anger to express yourself. So I became very adept at my words from a very young age. And he knew, you know, my mother died when I was very young. He knew that I was struggling with things and he was trying to help me navigate a way to, to manage those emotions without relying entirely on just getting angry. Because getting angry is usually the response to an emotion, not the emotion itself. So he he made me look at the ugly part of myself and figure out what are what are you actually feeling, which is why I'm so slow to anger now. Uh, I'm a very I'm a very difficult person to piss off, despite my background of being a fighter and being a pretty aggressive uh, person in my younger years. And you know I haven't forgotten who that man is. If he needs to come back, if he needs to come out, he'll come. But it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get me there. Uh, and part and because I had very strong women, also a part of my household, who challenged me in a thoughtful way, in a way that didn't make me feel like I was being broken down, but in a way that made me say, hey, if you're gonna feel something, you need to know why you feel it. If you think it, you need to be able to justify why you think it. You yelling louder is not going to solve the problem. And it's not gonna make people understand you. And so I struggled so much with being understood. I was a bit of a, not loner, but I was definitely, you know, like a very present outcast where I had lots of people around me, but no one really got me. And I never really felt like I was particularly understood people were trying people were just like it's jared my best friend that weirdo over there that, that says you know that quotes nietzsche in in english class and drives social studies professors crazy he's really cool i don't get him but he's a great guy to, to hang around and that was my upbringing so i credit that with my level of thoughtfulness around the words that i use and how that i use them and how i engage with people both people i agree with and people i disagree with um which I find a lot of younger men struggle with, even very grown men in my circles, struggle with uh, being challenged and being disagreed with. And I didn't realize how beneficial those, those experiences from a young age would be for me until I got older and spent more time around men who had not grown up the way that I did. Can't wait to hear how your family and and, um, and all of these figures you probably had around you taught you how to do that. Because just just to recap, so for anyone who hasn't um, heard the last episode, but we talked about how young men are really struggling, especially in this country. Especially, you know, it's it's funny we talk about the romance part because that's a huge part where men had this identity of being like the provider and the alpha male and. You know, we got to be tough and blah, blah, blah for so long with these really strict gender roles. And now that everything is a little bit more fluid and the economy is changing and there's a lot of changes going on um, on a social level. But a lot of men struggle to know, uh, you know, how their what their identity is, like what their role is, what what are the, what is their value? Um, how did they assert themselves without getting, you know, quote, me too or canceled mm -hmm. or whatever? So how do you, how do you defend yourself or deal with your emotions in a way that isn't just 
anger or stuffing it down. So it's it's amazing to hear that you even had a little bit of that, you know, just like a, a new way of approaching that instead of just quick to anger. Yeah, I think that, well, as my dad put it, used to put it, is that because he grew up around so many men who struggled with it, uh, he's, you know, of that generation, he was born in the fifties. So he's of that generation of our parents that man was man. And he was like, you don't feel, you don't show, you don't, mm-hmm. you know, do anything. Well then, and I didn't really think about the perspective of this until I got married. I'm since divorced, but until I got married and realizing what it is that I had to lose. When my father lost my mother, it forced him to turn inward and figure out how he was going to manage his emotions. And that's what, that's what began the journey of him making sure that his son mm. didn't do that, didn't fall down that, that rabbit hole as well, because he realized very quickly that no one was going to save him from what it was that he had to feel. There was no solace. There was no, uh, there was no safety net. No one really gave a shit that he, oh, I'm sorry. Can I curse on it? <laughs> I'm yeah, a yeah, you're good. Okay, but, but no one really gave a shit that he was suffering. Mm. Um, so he had to find a way to manage it himself. And I gained an incredible amount of respect for him once I got married and had a child with my now ex-wife, who's an incredible, incredible mother and, and married me way too early. Like I was not ready to be, I was ready to be a father. I was not ready to be a husband in the slightest. And um, I think that my father teaching those lessons and my willingness to receive them didn't happen simultaneously. And I had to go through the struggle of, I love that you, t- that you both touched on the, in the prior episode about the struggles that men go through around breakups and divorce that all, don't often get acknowledged. And who did I feel it when I went through my divorce and no one prepared me for, I was like, oh, I'll be fine. I'm going to get back. I was not fine. I spent mm-hmm. years uh, struggling with self-worth and self-acceptance, even just getting a, a new sense of who I was at that moment. So much of a man's identity is tied to what he can provide. And what and uh, and I love that you. I'm not saying anything new. I love that y'all that you you both mentioned it before. Like I I literally had a, a physical reaction when I heard it on the podcast. But like, thank you. Somebody is saying that so much of our identity and self worth is based around what we can provide. And we talk a lot about these other problems of the world, and then talk about them as if they don't affect other social issues. If we're talking about the economy, but then men of value for what they provide, then there's an inevitable connection between the struggle for anyone to make it and afford things and build a life for themselves. And then men's uh, men's ability to be that, to be that part of it. And we can boost, we've boosted up rightfully. So the role that women can play in society without taking a look at how that affected the role that men should now play in society. And it's, it's nuanced. It's hard to focus on all these things at once. Women needed this, this, this platform needed this boost. So it's easy to be so focused on the one thing, but now I think after enough time has passed, we're starting to see the reverberations of how that affected men because there is no automatic, well, you're a man, so you now have all the advantage. There are men that are victims too of the exact same system, but I love that the Barbie movie touched on it in its own subtle way. Not all men are winning from a patriarchal society. There are certain men that are women that are winning, but it's like anything else. If I'm an over six foot, big, strong guy, so I don't walk the street in fear for myself at any given moment. But if I were a 135 pound, five foot seven guy, I'd be worried about myself walking around. Him being a man doesn't protect him from being a victim because it's not a broad statement. Mm-hmm. And it works the same way emotionally and economically. It's like, yeah, if you're a, what they, I heard this thing from a, a, a women's podcast. I have a diverse podcast listening 
lever. <laughs> but they were talking about the six, six, and six, the six foot, six, uh, six figures with six pack ass. And that's the, the man that these women, that was the formula they came up with that these women were looking for. And I was that like, oh, has man. to be a title of the, of some episode that we do. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. That's 666. I heard it and I was like, this is fascinating. How is this not like PhD certified already? But I was like, oh, I'm six, I'm six foot. I make over six figures. And I, you know, have relative form of six pack apps for a guy who's approaching, who's approaching 40. <laughs> And I'm supposed to feel like I'm winning. So I'm like, if I'm not one of those things, if you're short or you're mm-hmm. making the average salary for a man, which is below 50,000 a year, you're not really walking around here with your chest out feeling all these great benefits of the patriarchal society. I'm experiencing those benefits, but most men are not experiencing that. If you are correct for uh, all those different elements, the height, the earning potential, they get cast aside mm-hmm. that they're not even fully men, let alone mm-hmm. men that should be regarded well by women. They're regarded poorly by other men. So yeah. it's, it's such a nuanced, you know, conversation around it, around the, the men's self-worth that I think as I transition, I know I'm giving a long answer, so I'll try to finish here. But as I transitioned from struggling to make it and getting back on my feet, and it took me nine years post-divorce to really get myself in, in a good position financially and personally and emotionally, psychologically, but I, I was so self-aware that I noticed a huge transition in the way that I moved through the world. Once I made real money, once I wasn't worried about where my next meal was coming from, once I kind of moved about and I'm with a more confident, I became a different person. Where if you, like some men, if that you're with them while they're struggling, if you saw them, saw them veer towards success, you might not even recognize the man, the man that they become because they're moving from a place of not worried about the societal expectation anymore mm. i don't i don't worry about what women think of me now mm. now mm-hmm. i'm thankful that i'm generally regarded pretty positively but the stress of worrying about it constantly like so much of what we do is based around how women are going to regard us if women love garbage men there'll be a line around the block of men trying to be garbage men <laughs> like it's a so much of what we're doing is just based on how we can be regarded by the fair sex as the as the historians called it so if, if this is what we know is valued, the, the men that have it are chilling, almost to a point of fault, like you referenced before, about how these douchey, rich, you know, young men treat women because they know that they're, what the, they're what's wanted, they're what's desired. So they can get away, with, get away with doing all this crap. But the younger guys are now just doing any and everything they can to try to hustle to get there or killing themselves in wrecking numbers because they know they never will. And, I, and that's a, a whole other wing of, of conversation, but... It's affecting men on a deep, deep level. The conversation needs to be had before it's too late for anyone who cares about men or their sons who will soon become men. Yeah, I. so first of all, I feel like there are about 25 different places we could take this conversation. So I'm like, <laughs> deciding on a question is, <laughs> it's been an interesting process. But there's this scene in the Barbie movie where she's like women have to be x they have to be y and they have to be not too much this and not too much this and i've always been like yeah that's totally true but i don't feel like it's necessarily easier for men i mean i wonder if we could do that same exercise with what men need to be when you think about the patriarchy it almost seems like we're talking about this sliver of men and um and sometimes the same with women i mean I always felt like I would use the patriarchy to my 
advantage in certain ways. And then, but other women are like, I can't, I don't, I'm not perceived that way. Um, mm. I don't have that education level or that like attractiveness level or, or the, the boldness to basically use men for their money or whatever the case may be. <laughs> so there's like way more kind of puzzle pieces in this than I think we often recognize. And I think you're pointing out that like, yeah, what about, I don't know. What about men who don't make six figures? Um, what about white men who bald, which is very different than black men? <laughs> what about, uh, yeah. What about short guys? What about economically disadvantaged men? Like how do they fit into this system and these kind of power structures that we're suddenly obsessed with talking about? I think the short answer is that they don't. And that's the problem with the system. Yeah. That they don't really fit into it right now, other than to serve the whims of the people who are at the greatest advantage of it, the men who are more well off, the women who can benefit from those and have found a way to benefit from that system. They think that, oh, I've, I still have all these men to pass, not realizing you've already passed most men's ceiling. Like by, like by getting to a certain place, believe it or not, if you made 75K a year and had at least a master's degree, you've already surpassed most men in American society. Yeah. You've already done it. Like, like, yeah, there's more, you know, some people define themselves by the struggle that they're up against. Some people define themselves by a racial struggle or a gender struggle or some, and a very real uh, disadvantageous uh, position that they're in. But once you get past a certain point, it becomes difficult to then accept like, oh, I've made it. So I just have to create a new adversary. Well, for these men, that, that aren't in that place, the adversary becomes either men who have made it, the women who don't pay attention to them, that turn that they feel turn them into these incel uh, men who's, who don't have friends and don't have many social interactions and don't have the value that society has deemed, has deemed uh, that they should have. And you could either work harder to try to get there, but if you see no path to that point, then they regress and they go even further. And then all these people become their enemies. So it's tough to be a man in a position of, you don't have social impact mm -hmm. and then have all these perceived enemies. Well, then they're going to lash out in ways that, that we still have yet to see the full, we've seen a lot of it, you know, mass shooters and, and violence against women and all that we've seen it. And it's not to excuse it at all, but we've seen the manifestations of how that anger, resentment and feeling forgotten can manifest itself. I mean, even politically, we see it of how that a lot of those people just don't feel heard. A lot of people just don't feel like they, they matter. And if they find someone who speaks to them and makes them feel like they matter, it doesn't really matter what they're saying. They could be, they could be complete snake oil salesmen, but at least that snake oil salesman is talking to me yeah. instead of pretending like I'm not, like I'm not there. It's interesting. I, as you were saying that, I was thinking the same thing about that that makes so much sense why there's like this big chunk of the country that it just, you know, are now, you know, are now expressing so much anger and rioting and doing all these, all these things, shootings, because, mm -hmm. it, because as you're saying, if they don't fit into what you're supposed to, supposed to be, then there's nowhere mm -hmm. for them to go except for, you know, fighting. And I, I was mm -hmm. thinking like, it's a little bit, it's, it is a little bit more flexible for women now, probably because we talked about it so much recently that seeing the equivalent of, you know, like an objective standard, like being thin. Well, yeah. being thin, we still feel the pressure to be thin as women, 
but now we have a little bit more flexibility of like different beauty standards and we're just at least talking about it but for men almost what i'm hearing from you is like if men don't make a certain amount of money they should probably start making more money <laughs> like like enjoying the comforts of or the advantages of a lower salary like eventually we should move to but like it's it sounds like if you don't make it you're not making it well, I think it's the, the struggle is that if you're constantly told that this is the thing that makes you valuable, well, then you will both constantly try to get that thing and never examine anything else about yourself that might make you valuable. So they could have all this untapped potential, but if they have no reason to look at it, like I, like I, I never focused on trying to make a lot of money. I somehow managed to leverage my emotional introspection and my ability with the English language to make myself a living. But I had to explore that thing that's off the beaten path that nobody says I should value. And in fact, most people told me it was a waste of time to be valued and then turn that into a way to create a living for myself. So I don't just and this is where some of the people that are successful struggle is I'm not just successful. I'm successful at the thing that give, that I feel comfortable giving me purpose. I'm not working a job that I can't stand to make the six, seven figures that makes me valuable, according to a patriarchal society. I actually enjoy myself. I love doing what I'm doing. Now that brings its own set of issues <laughs> because when you really love what you're doing and you take a lot of time doing it, some people have a hard time splitting that attention, that attention with you because they know, Hey, if I want to be a successful guy, I got to be okay with the things that make him, <laughs> that make him successful, which means he's probably going to work his ass off. He's probably going to be intensely focused on these particular things. And I say all that to say that for a lot of these men, if they, it's not that they, yes, According to society, they should just make more money. But it's really that they should be finding something in themselves that's more that's more or just as valuable as their earning potential. Now, part of that is twofold. They have to find it, and then other people have to value it. And you'd be hard-pressed if you ask, in my, and I'm thankful that I have lots of women as close friends of mine and confidants, that when I ask them, what does a man give you other than money? Like, what does he provide for you emotionally? There's a lot of crickets in the room. And if they ask them what they're looking for a man to provide for them emotionally, they'll get just the same number of crickets. Interesting. So it's both men not knowing what to give. And then in some cases, women not necessarily knowing what it is that they want from a man beyond that. Cause if the, if the men don't exist, that means you don't have any experience with them. <laughs> if the, if the men that, that have all these qualities that we want them to have are so few and far between, that means most women have never actually engaged with a man who has that level of emotional self-awareness. So what I found my struggle personally and anecdotally in dating is that a woman will ask for a man that has the qualities that I possess, but then when I use them, it challenges her to have to bring the same thing to the table. It's like, hey, I'm going to I'm not going to yell and scream and stomp around when I have a problem. I'm going to tell you what my problem is very clearly, very concisely, and as calmly as I'm talking right now. But if you're so used to having a knockdown drag out well, this is the way I'm used to responding to men. I don't know how to handle this man that's not getting angry and is very calmly telling me, is this a trick? Is this a game? Is, is there subtext here? And sometimes just getting someone to trust that I'm telling the truth and that I'm saying how I feel because we've all been conditioned around these patriarchal norms that women are affected in that way by it. So even with all that success and that narrower dating pool that successful women have to navigate, you're still dealing with men that were part of that same system that you found a way to succeed in. So all the money in the world is not going to make you more emotionally introspective or emotionally intelligent. All that stuff that 
So then once you have that man, what do you do with that? How do you build something more with that man that isn't just based on money, that isn't just based on the things that he can provide or protect in that, you know, in that regard, emotional safety or all that? What more is there to him? But if you don't ask more of him, he's not going to think yeah. to look any deeper. And I think part of the demand on men that I would love to see more women put on men is the emotional demand. They feel so much of the financial demand. And like some men just literally can't afford to date in New York City. It's the net, like the price of everything. So some men would love to date and just can't afford to do it. But also, hey, you want to give that man a real challenge to see if he really wants to, to commit to you and build something lasting with you. Challenge that man to look inward. And if he's not willing to do that, there's no amount of money that's going to make him do that. There's no amount of money that he's going to earn that's going to make him willing to do that. So I think some of it is just the, those men need to do more, but it's not the more that they think it is. Mm-hmm. It's not the more that involves how do I get a better paying job or how do I do this, these things. It's the more that makes them more, that makes them bring more to the table than just their wallet. You know, it's so funny you say this because I um, I wish you would, you know, say, say this message to my current and previous partners, because I feel like I, I, at least as you know, we're psychologists. So I kind of know a little bit more about what I want emotionally and the partners I've had have done, you know, decent, a decently good job of talking through emotions or like supporting me. But I found that if they are not making the money that they want, it's not like I'm looking for that in them, but they get depressed and they question themselves and their insecurity affects our relationship. So I'm like, okay, go make money because then you'll be happier. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, it's what you're talking about is complex. And it's like this fixation on that salary level. It's like, it, 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 it's like a double-edged sword, right? Absolutely. And you touched on something very important about that. The way insecurity can show itself in men is that like we'll, we'll, we'll be constantly, we'll be in a relationship with you and be thinking that the relationship is fine, but it's always an asterisk. Like unless somebody just like me with more figures in his bank account rose up, the exact same quality, gives you all the same feelings, but he also makes 200K a year. Well, he's going to be like, well, that's all it's going to take. She's gone. Wow. Like, I'm going to, somebody's going to see in her what I see in her except he's going to have done the, the, the financial. I'm like, no, that's work. silly. But I think if, if there was just like a hotter version of me that rolls up, I would also be upset. <laughs> because the standard, the, the standard is different. Like the same way, like, oh, if he gives, if this woman has all the same qualities as me, but she looks like a supermodel, well, then I'm going to be like, oh no, yeah. what's, what's happening? Well, that's the male version of it. Yeah. <laughs> the male version of it is like the uh-huh. exact same dude, either big, big, much strong muscles and such and such or lots of money in the bank account or a nine inch, whatever, like all these different, <laughs> all these different things that men are sitting there just thinking that the other men are out there, the better men are out there. I've got this great, wonderful blessing in my life. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to lose her. It's hard to shake that. It is hard to shake that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm like, okay, well, what do women need to need to bring to the table? It's like, well, we have to be hot. Okay. Men have to be rich and uh, big and strong. So I think some of it is that we, we, and we're acknowledging here that the standards are different from men to women. Uh, uh, women, like any woman, or just about any woman, I'll say, I won't even say that. I'll say there's a larger percentage of women that could walk out their house right now and get laid if they want to. 
and men have to be good in bed. At least that, that seems like a huge preoccupation with men specifically. I mean, yeah. the number of male partners who have been like, like, how do I, how do I rank? Like, how do I level here? I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're all kind of the same. And then like, I'll have a better connection with some of you, you know, or like maybe one or two of you had some cool extra moves, but like, it's not this like, oh yeah, I'm going to bring out my spreadsheet in like rank order, you know? And, and it's definitely not length of time, <laughs> fellas. It's not length of time. <laughs> you lasting for a long time is, you know. <laughs> that puts you at the bottom. <laughs> Get that shit over with. <laughs> it's about to be a very different podcast, but I think much like our no, much like a relationship, like an emotional relationship, sexual relationship. If you're paying attention, that's ninety percent of the ninety yes, percent of the battle. You. Whatever it is, just pay. It's not like I, people want me to like. Oh, what's the formula? It's really very simple. Pay attention. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Paying attention. That's usually the the roadmap is there. You just don't know. You're so busy going flying down the street. That you not realizing, like, no, no, you missed your turn over there. Mm-hmm. That was the, mm-hmm. that, that the, the orgasm is over there. Like, you, you missed mm-hmm. it. <laughs> well, I think so much of it is both complex and simple. It's just yes. paying attention. But Jackie, you touched on something very, that's a real thing. And I think that's another thing that Scott Galloway touches on a lot, along with the video game, is the influence of pornography. Yeah. And it's like, okay. if you, if you, and, and the dissociation from the fact that what you're watching is fantasy. One of my very first paid writing jobs, believe it or not, was an adult film. That was one of the very first ways that I got that I got paid to write. It's oh the easiest God. shocker. It's the easiest thing <laughs> to write for that you have, that you could ever imagine. But one of the first paid gigs I ever got was writing for adult film, and so I got to know the industry very well. Been on sets and you know imagine whatever comes along with that, and and all that kind of thing. But it's all an act, and then, and mm-hmm. after enough consumption of it, you kind of dissociate from the fact that what you're watching is not real. So while it might seem like, oh, this woman seemed to be having the time of her life while these four like heavy pipe laden dudes run through or whatever, like it's all part of a fantasy. It's not it's not part of the like I had a great conversation. I don't know how deep we can go on this, so I'm use, using my language. But I had a great conversation with a with a friend of mine, this woman, who sent me this video of this this TikTok woman talking about like, guys, you don't need to have a 10 inch penis to success to, to satisfy us. It's like, and she was going through all these different measurements. So like, there's a, there's a, a law of diminishing return. After a certain point, it's like, this isn't, this isn't fun anymore. This feels like work. This feels like something that is happening to me. <laughs> After, you know, like, like that's the way she was describing it. And I thought it was hilarious. And just in my experience from, you know, there's just accurate, like all these things that you, see on TV, much like in video games aren't real, that stuff's not real either. And that, we're, not all women, some women might be looking for that, but not all women are looking for a guy to do them, to do that to them. Uh, so I think it's the exact same avenue of men needing to spend more time both with each other in person, spend more time away from technology, away from anything that's not, that's not real, anything that's simulating the reality that they want. Go out and live the reality that you want. And the only way you can do that is to, as the, the kids say, touch grass, but get outside. Like you got to get away from yeah. the screen. And I think a lot of men are struggling with that because they, they're having such a trouble getting the real thing out in the world. So this is the closest thing to, you know, how sad it is when that's the closest thing to a sexual connection you can have, like regardless of attractiveness level of a woman, if she, she could go outside today and have a much easier time getting laid, if that's her goal is to get laid by the end of the day. She could get laid by the end of the day. 
a man, there, most men cannot walk out the house with that mission yeah. and come back and come back successful. So we're talking a lot about the problem with men. What do you see happening with boys? And that's that's mm-hmm. the population you're working with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, young boys and t- up to up to nineteen. Uh, okay. And then it's select, in select ways a little bit older, but most of them between the ages of about 12 to 19. And I can speak both as a professional and as a father of one, because I'm sometimes what I see with him informs how I interact with them and vice versa is some of what the tail, what I touched on the tail end of what we were just talking about. It's so much of this, this feeling of not being allowed to experience adversity and being sheltered from failing. Okay. And that so much of your character comes from being unsuccessful and how you manage not being successful. So if you are sheltered from, if the participation trophies, if the like apple slices and feel good after every sporting event of like, no, my, my most, the, the moments that defined me were like losing and that being just having to sit in the losing, <laughs> failing at something and just nobody being there to say, to say like, oh no, it's okay. You're wonderful. No matter what, Timmy, like, no. The, the, like it's like oh don't worry you're 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 just perfect the way you are no I'm not <laughs> and, and learning that you from a very young age that you aren't perfect and that you have things that you can work on and that you have things that you can explore like just to be a kid just to get out there and get dirty not just in the literal sense but in the in the life sense of like hey ask that girl out yes you might say no but that's the that's part of the that's part of the experience. Getting out there and say, I'm going to try out for that team. Well, I'm not very good. Try out for it anyway. You might make it and surprise yourself. You might you might fail. Like my son made the basketball team, but then he didn't get much playing time. And he had to navigate the like, oh, I'm getting made fun of because I don't get in the game very much. Even though he's the valedictorian of his class. Because of what because of what young boys. Oh, good job, Jerry. Yeah, value. Oh, that's as much. His mom is a PhD in curriculum development. That's as much. That's way more her. I'm I'm helpful with the soft skills, but but she's way more influential in that regard. But yeah, it's a. I think what young boys need is an opportunity to get out there and live, and not just live in the sense of oh, it's all sunshine and rainbows. They got to be able to get out there and live the reality of the world. Because when you send them off at 18 or whatever to go out into the world in the college, but you haven't prepared them for what that world is going to look like, yeah, that's doing them a disservice. You're not, you're not putting them in the best position to succeed because you've constantly sheltered them from failure. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if I had to give, and you know, I could write a dissertation on all the different things I think young boys need, but I think the thing that's most prevalent is that they aren't being encouraged to take risks, which and you touched on it in, the, in your earlier podcast. It's something that traditionally men are usually not, not as concerned about risk as women. Mm-hmm. I think that's slowly starting to change. And men are now so aware of risk that they're not taking any. And that the ramifications of that are going to be far-reaching and more far-reaching than we realized in 20 years or so. Yeah, I was wondering if you felt like this was a boy-specific thing. Like, are girls not being pushed out enough, or does it just not matter as much for girls because it's not as central to the, our personalities? I think that I, I do think girls are taking more risks than they have in the past. Mm. I also think, because I do work with young women as well, I also think that part of it is they don't feel, well, this could be cultural because there are some cultural differences. Uh, but like, but for example, immigrant families versus African-American families versus white, white American families and so on. But they also don't feel it's a, it's a little bit easier to take a risk when failure doesn't knock you down as far. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to make it in this, 
in this patriarchal economic structure. And you're like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to try to be a doctor or an engineer or, or whatever. But you aren't treating that as the main thing that makes you valuable. Then if you don't succeed, yeah. you don't feel nearly as much of a drop off, which makes what I've seen as young women more likely to take that second chance. Mm-hmm. If they don't get that first internship, they're way more likely to come to me and say, Jared, what do I have to do to prepare for the next one? When the young men didn't get their first, that first crack of they, after that interview, I had a hard time reaching them because they would, they would kind of go into their, their bubble and try to manage those emotions that they don't know how to manage because they don't have a man around usually to help them figure out how to navigate those things. So I think that's the difference. Women are, are taking more risks, but they also don't feel nearly as cut off at the knees when that risk doesn't work out. So then they bounce back better. They bounce back more quickly and more effectively to try the next thing. That makes sense. I remember in our last episode, we talked about how women have more opportunities to make different identities, right? They have, it's not, there's not one more central thing that they're known to do. And, you know, their whole value is riding on it anymore. And men, as we're talking about, it's like still kind of career and, uh, you know, like if they lose an the internship, oh my gosh, like what else do they have to fall back on? Um, and I'm curious too, what is, you know, I'm glad that you're saying that the taking the risk, especially because I have a one-year-old boy he just turned one like this week. And uh, I'm kind of scared how, you know, what is it like to raise a, a boy these days? And uh, what what do you think the goal is? I know there's no not one answer, but if they're, they're, um, going to take risks and they learn to fail. They learn to they learn uh, and build their character from their losses. But now we still have the expectation that the goal is to like be tall and make money. What <laughs> what what do you tell these boys to be or become or go towards? Well, what I do is tell them that the, the the greatest value, and I think this is not just gender specific, but we're talking about men and boys. I think the greatest value is comfort with yourself. That what that who you are and what you bring to the table as a human being is the springboard for everything else. Because as we've seen what happens with very rich people who don't have that that foundation of of self-comfort, they're flawed. Even with all that success, they have issues. They're struggling in their own way. And then we treat it as because you've made it in capitalism, you're not really struggling. And yeah, it's a little bit easier to cry in a Ferrari than it is you know, out of a cardboard box. I'm not, I'm going to acknowledge that. But at the same time, learning who you are and what you are and what you want and what you enjoy versus what society tells you you should be, I think is it, it's hard to quantify the amount of value that that brings. I think also part of it is that as we are trying to, there are unintended consequences of getting away from what we call traditional masculine value. And the irony that I see is I sit back now, it's like, oh, masculinity, if I break, because part of my job as a writer is to break down people and characters down to their base urges and motivations and characteristics. And then when I, when I think about, as, I've, as I write some of my characters and I look at human beings as characters, it's like, oh, masculinity looks fine as long as women are doing it. <laughs> because some of the same qualities that are listed as, oh, these are the things that, that are masculine qualities, the women that are fought through to that patriarchal system to get where they are are often exhibiting those traits that we now say are bad for men to for men to exhibit the exact same quality that competitiveness that aggression that is now rewarded among or applauded among women that's right you go out there you go get it and that's great 
but then it it come with the unintended consequence of now making boys feel bad for for having those same those same qualities. So I think some of it is getting back to like masculinity is not in and of itself toxic. And that there are elements of it the same way there are elements of toxic any idiot that you want to uh, or ology that you want to add on to it. It's not all we're not all great. And I think that in, it's this, this chasm between it's great to have empowered women. That also means that that doesn't have to mean disempowered men. It doesn't have to mean boys that feel bad about themselves just for being just for being boys or being competitive or being ambitious. Or, or being like, hey, I, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat these other people. It's fine to be that way, but we have to figure out the balance so that you can be that way without feeling like you're at the the expense of other of other more marginalized people, while also realizing that there's a reality to the world, society, and the way it works is that if there is a win, that means that someone lost. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a hard time as a society currently accepting that somebody's going to lose. That's just the reality of, I don't care what system it is, capitalist, socialist, communist, whatever you want to call it. Historically, there are winners and there are losers. And the only thing that changes is what those things look like. There was a time when these computer geeks were the lowest of the low in the 90s. And now they're the king of all, of all, of all, they, of all they oversee. So it, it just the winners and losers are going to be there. And I think once we become okay with the fact, not okay that people are going to lose, but okay the fact that losers are just a part of reality, then we can start being okay with being competitive and being okay with being ambitious and trying to move yourself up and forward as a human being without it being constantly through the lens of, does this also bring me value as a man? Mm -hmm. Because that shouldn't be the reason why you're doing it. Otherwise, that's going to show itself. If, If success was the key to making a good man, there wouldn't be so many, you know, high profile lawyers going upside their wives' heads. Like it's not a it's it's not a an automatic. Well, that guy's going to become a good man when he gets rich. Mm-hmm. No, the good the, the the good man quality has nothing to do with the earning potential. It has to do with his value in a sexual marketplace, but it doesn't have to do with who he is as a human being. If we get them more okay with being all these different varieties of things as human beings, I think that's the step toward them being okay with. Hey, that wasn't meant for me. I'm not meant to make a million dollars. Because we're not all going to do that. We're not all going to be the bosses. Some of us are going to be employees. <laughs> we're not all going to be four to 500 CEOs. Some of us are going to be custodians. And that's okay. You are not mm-hmm. now less of a man because you have a different way of making a living. But we as a society treat that man as if he's lesser. And he doesn't deserve as much. He doesn't deserve a, a wife. He doesn't deserve a family or a house or all these different things because he doesn't fit this, this mold. Mm-hmm. And we treat it, we treat them as such and then get shocked that they get treated like they're not worth shit. Well, if you treat somebody like they ain't worth shit, they're going to eventually start treating themselves like they are worth shit. And regarding and other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a sense of why, I mean, we were th- just to move back to men for a second. Um, mm-hmm. There is a sense that like, okay, they don't get women and they don't get respect. And then they they start choosing enemies and the enemies tend to be women, which I can almost understand a little bit better because it's kind of like we're withholding the thing that they most mm. want. Why mm. minorities, immigrants, uh, marginalized people? Why do, does that tend to be the enemy? Do you make sense? Why do they tend to be the enemy? Oh, you mean, oh, you mean among that subset of like the aggravated white American yeah. incel yeah. community? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, first off, if you're constantly told, and I'm going to speak racially first, if you're constantly told that this system that has been made for you to succeed and you still haven't succeeded in it, while you've watched other people succeed mm-hmm. in it, you're going to go one of two ways, if not both. You're going to think that the system is not actually set up for you to succeed, which is where they bounce, they fight back against that, like, oh, this isn't a white patriarchal society because I'm broke and I'm mm-hmm. a white man. So clearly it's not that that thing or that the only way that that person of color has reached that success is because they're a marginalized community and they couldn't have gotten there without. So it's like, Oh, you've had it. You had it given to you. You didn't earn it. Or this wasn't made for me in the first place. And that's where they, that's where they turn towards minority community as the enemy. Cause if, cause if, and part of it is that we speak so broadly about the, the way the system is set up, like, Oh, white male, this, well, if there's a white man out there that's not, that doesn't feel powerful, he's going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? This doesn't, mm-hmm. like, what do you mean? I'm like, Or he's going to look at women and say, what do you mean this is a patriarchal society? You make more money than I do. So how am I, so how is it automatically set up for me? And that's because it's more nuanced than that. And, but if they're failing in the society that was set up for them, then they're going to be a little angsty when they see other people that aren't like that succeeding mm-hmm. in this society that not long ago, like in our parents' generation, was set up for them to not only not succeed, but to automatically be failure and failure be the ceiling. Like my, my dad grew up in colored and white water fountains in Georgia. Like it's, like it's not that long ago that that was society. So now if you've been raised by, by that same generation that shared the same timeline as my dad, where my dad sees the opportunities for me grow, but that white, white grandfather sees the, the, the opportunities for you shrink you're going to be taught through the lens of those shrinking opportunities and that or they'll treat elitists, you know, the elite like that, the experts at anything being into an intellectual is now treated like a bad thing, which ironically in a progressive way, you're treated badly with male or female. If you're an intellectual, you're the, you're the enemy. So at least we've cre- created some gender equality in that, in that sense. PhD means you're a piece of shit, no matter, no matter the gender, but that's the same way that they, they fight back against coastal elites. And people that are highly educated, like, oh, you don't know everything because, because, oh, that, like, oh, you're not talking to me. You're not talking about me when you say all these things. My life isn't the way you say it is. So what do you know? So I think that's where they create these enemies. And, you know, human beings, we function in such a way, at least in America, where if we can't find an enemy, we'll just make one up. Yeah. And for a lot of them, these enemies are completely manufactured. For a lot of them, these like these poor, these poor white people don't realize how much they have in common with poor black people. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. But if, and this was a thing that was said even as recently as the 70s by major politicians, was like, if you can get the poorest white man to believe that he is better than the richest black man, then you can, you can manipulate that man. So there are, there are some, some fat, poorly white guy in a trailer park somewhere who thinks that he's genetically superior to LeBron James. Yeah. And, be, and believes it to his core. Yeah. Like, it's just not possible. The, the, the pure fact of the one thing they can't take away from me is my skin color. And that makes me better. My question is, it's going back to kids again, because with all this, we know that the outcomes for black boys are the worst. Black girls yeah. are actually improved. I mean, it seems like vastly improving on mm-hmm. at least educational metrics. Have you noticed, is there anything specific to black boys beyond obvious setbacks? Um yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are, you, like, are you seeing something about that community specifically? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So everything that we've talked about 
has its own counterpart in the black community and it looks a little bit different. So gender relationships like around dating, for example, look very different, but not very different, but the effects are different in the marginalized community. So for example, and it's, it's interesting how, how bifurcated these, these worlds have, have become, but like the general talk around feminism is boosting women up and trying to find a way to give women the opportunities that men have and finding ways for men to, to perform and be better as partners, as parents, and you're finding a way to try to be a counterpart with the men that you're seeking out, which is the whole reason, I imagine part of the reason that you were having these conversations to begin with is trying to find ways to, hey, we don't want to pull our men down because we need them and we want them and we love them and we have men in our lives and we're raising men. So the black community has a different lexicon around this kind of stuff where it's a, we don't need men. Okay. Men are terrible. Men are tolerated. So they've kind of taken that, that the message from feminism of the 20th century and then expounded it to, to and some of this was, was purposeful by our government in the mid 20th century, but removing, creating benefits and removing the male, the male from the household. And this is not to get too deep into it, but this has been a practice that's gone on since slavery time. It was on purpose to either remove or emasculate the men in the eyes of their women. So to beat up, to beat the biggest, strongest man in front of their women to reduce the way that that man is perceived among society. Well, you see a modern day version of it. So while men are trying to fight one battle to try to advance themselves and black men actually have made a lot of progress in that, in that regard, but that, but yet our standing among our women has changed very little. That's so some of those same, some of those same benefits where, and this is where you see more of a rise of, and this is a deeper dive, more of a rise of interracial dating and men seeking partners outside of, outside of the community. So ultimately, do you really want to spend a lot of time with somebody that hates you? And if they talk about you in such a way, do you pursue that? Because it's one thing for, I think some people think being a strong woman and being a man or, 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 or being like a man are synonymous. And that some people have a hard time navigating that they're very different things. So that some women are, are actually just emulating men toward men, but then wondering why they're not getting a better response from a man. It's like, well, because the man doesn't want to be with a man. That man wants to be with a woman, wants to be with a woman. So it's a, some of that is, is deeply cultural in the historic fabric of the black community. And then a lot of black boys being raised in one particular way and black girls being raised in another particular way. So like our young women in our program thrive because they come in with being told from their matriarchs, you need to be able to do this by yourself. Okay. Men are not going to, men are not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Men can't help you. Men are men, or in some cases, men are awful or evil or whatever, if they go to the more extreme, but at the very least, you need to do this alone. You're the only person that you can rely on. So they are much harder at seeking education and affluence and money, but they adapted the same principle you both mentioned in the previous podcast, that women date laterally and up. Mm-hmm. Well, if black men are struggling to try to get there, but black women are skyrocketing up that, that ladder, then the black woman who wants to date a black man who is looking for that six, six, and six is dealing with a much smaller pool mm-hmm. of men while having to also compete with every other woman. Because the difference being statistically, men, black men have a much larger available dating pool than black yeah. women do. 
because black because there are a lot more races that are willing to date black men than are willing to date black women, just statistically, not of not from like an, on my emotion, but just statistically, black men when they reach that certain point, they open up this plethora of way more women than they thought, and I've experienced it personally of way more women than they thought would ever be available to them, an unintended consequence of desegregation and blended communities and so on is like, for example, I went to an elite institution and it was like, oh, I've made it. I've made it. I'm, I'm going to this elite institution. Why were my family, why was my family shocked that my first girlfriend in college was white? When there's like 91% of the people <laughs> that, that go there, where it was like, oh, I don't have many of my peer group around to date, let alone actually, and then actually be compatible with one another. The more you go up, the, the dating options for men get broader, but for women that doesn't necessarily happen at the same at the same rate. So they actually close off. They've become, if you're dating laterally enough, dealing with a smaller pool of available men who are not seeing them as the only option, and that creates other longer ranging consequences in that, like from a the, that uniqueness of the minority dating situation as it relates to men and their advancement. So I'm curious that you said that the girls coming into your program are told you have to do this by yourself. What are the mm-hmm. boys told? Like, what do they come in mm-hmm. feeling? Well, that's the, that's the tougher conversation to have, right? Because we're dealing, we're essentially working against the social expectations that their community puts on them. So it's not like we as an organization are telling these women that. Their families tell them that. Their neighborhood tells them that, right? So the young boys, I think even worse than not than being told something negative, they're not being told anything. Sometimes for for a lot of these young men, I am the only man in their life telling them to try to pursue anything with any level of ambition. Like my phone blows up with young men who don't have men in their lives, not just as fathers, but community members, just people, men looking out for them. And the men in our organization become even more vital in that way, because at least we're telling them something. I think we're so worried about the proper messaging that we're not realizing how the damage of not having a message mm. at all, that it, that the effect of these, because rightfully so, these young women have gotten so much of the focus. We just assume that because it's a patriarchal society, the men will be fine. Mm-hmm. They won't be fine because now you're essentially putting them out there like a Spartan kid in the desert, telling them, hey, survive and then come home. And then we're like, and a surprise that they're failing. When they don't have any, they don't even know what they're supposed to be aspiring to. Yeah. So, so when you don't know what your goal is, failure can look like lots of different things. And failure is a lot easier to attain when you don't have a goal. Because as long as you're not moving forward, you think, you think that you're failing. So we help kind of create a vision or like we help them navigate. Well, first off, rather than say you should do this, this, and this, what do you want to do? What do you want to see for yourself? Where do you want to go? Because no one's asking like, we ask our kids all the time, what do you think? How do you feel about what's going on right now? And they think it's a trick question because adults don't ask them what they think of anything unless there's a particular answer that that adult is looking for. We're not looking for a particular answer. I want you to tell me honestly what you think. And these men, these young men are so terrified or conditioned around the terror of expressing themselves that they will only talk to me or other young men, other men in our organization. Or some of their select teachers, of which there are a lot of great male teachers of all races that are out there trying to do this work, because internally men are having these conversations. And I'm glad that it's becoming a bigger conversation that women are now also a part of, because you should be a part of it. 
But I think part of it is that we're constantly, we, these young men, the only time they heard what a man is supposed to be is from women. Because mm-hmm. women are, women have taken a lot of, uh, are using a lot of tech YouTube, podcast universe. Women are using a lot of hours of work hours to ex- explain to men what men are supposed to be without acknowledging the fact that men are just as complex as women, just in a different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Now, a man can't, can't dare tell a woman how to be a woman, but women tell men how to be men all the time. Mm-hmm. And, the de- and, the, and the problem is there's no counter narrative because men aren't telling men how to be men anymore. Because we don't know how to be <laughs> men anymore because the, the way we were taught is now being challenged. And if we're trying to figure it out, and we don't know what to say to these young men. They're out here even more aimless than my generation of men. So I think they're just not getting a message is the problem. What messages do you give them? You know, I, what the words that you said before rang in my head of, I wasn't ready. I was ready to be a father, but not ready to be a husband yet. Knowing mm-hmm. your experience, what do you tell like your son or the, or these young men? What should I tell my, my son about like what, <laughs> What, what does it mean to be a father? Or what does it mean to be a partner? So, yeah, big question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm thankful that I, I haven't, I've started having the, the conversation with my son about what it means to be a man. I know the time will come, he's 14, so I know the time will come eventually where we get into. But for I've been doing this work long enough that some of the young men who I've known since they were 16 are now 23, 24, 25 excuse me, and they're coming to me with those, those questions and those thoughts. One, I love the fact that men are even being thoughtful, young men are even being thoughtful about what that looks like, about how to be a partner, because they don't want to repeat some of the same things they've seen in their own families. But I think part of it, part of what I try to tell them is that what I learned in my, in my process of, of realizing that I was ready to be a father but not be a husband is that I made the false, I had the false idea that being a husband and being a father was somehow connected to one another and that you have to be a husband first in order to be a good father. Like, you know, the traditional Judeo-Christian social norms that all of us, all of us have had imparted on us in some way and realizing I didn't realize first off, and it's just me speaking for myself at this point. I was like, Oh, I love my wife where like, she loves me. We have a life built. We have money. We have state stability. We have a big house. We have all these things that a person needs to be ready to be parents. And then I held my son and immediately realized that I had no idea what I was doing and that I was gonna have to try to figure this out. Like all that stability in the world is just preparing you for how unprepared you're going to be when you have a child. And I'm not gonna speak for the experience of a mother, but that's what his mother also shared with me, was this feeling of like, we don't know what we're doing and we're figuring this out together. But what we realized in the process of being effective parents is how ill-equipped we were as partners to each other. Because we commun, for example, we've never had a major disagreement about our son from birth to now, which anybody who's a parent out there and in here, that's remarkable. It's like whether you're in a relationship together or not, and the fact that we're divorced, but people ask us to be godparents to their children is, indic- is mm-hmm. indicative enough of it. We communicated very well as, hus- as co-parents, not very well as husband and wife. And I think part of it is because I, I was very prepared for how to be a father because I, in part, watched my dad be a father, a very attentive and communicative father. But what I never got the chance to see him be was a husband because my mother was gone. Mm-hmm. 
and my father didn't date again for a long time. Like he got remarried the same year I got married. So I never, my adolescence got to see a great shining example of what it means to be a father. And then no example whatsoever of what my dad looked like as a partner to someone. And I don't know that he would have been great at it or terrible at it, but I had, like I said, there was no message. There was no preparation for that. My dad was preparing me to be a man and a father, but he did not know how to prepare me to be a husband because he had only been a husband for a short time when he lost his wife. So that was, that's my anecdotal situation for why I struggled with it. But what I tell young men is communication is key. That's a, that's so overused to the point where it seems cliche, but it's, it gets to be a cliche because it works. Is that not just talking, but knowing what it is that you want to say and knowing how to say it benefits you in all areas of life. Like for, I tell them to treat it like networking because that's how they always have it related to it, have it related to them is if you go into a mixer, if you go into a, a, a corporate mixer or a networking event, and you learn how to talk about yourself in a business professional environment, you learn how to run off your resume of how you'd be a benefit to this company or how you're great at this particular job, this particular role. And you learn all these ways to sell yourself in that way. But very few people have that same sense of themselves in a relationship. For like, I know now at 39, what it is that I bring that would benefit you and me to a relationship. If you ask me to run off my personal relationship resume, I can do that because I've spent enough time looking inward to figure that out. What I learned as a husband was that I had no idea who I was as a husband. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what my value was. I had no idea. This was a, at the time a woman that was way more accomplished than me, as a lot of black women often have to do. She dated down, mm -hmm. not necessarily intellectually, but from an earning potential standpoint, I didn't earn more money than her until we were w well after we were divorced. She was alongside me, helping me while I was trying to figure my shit out as a man, when in reality, she should not have had to be there for that part of the ride. That's the part of the ride that I should have been doing by myself. Mm -hmm. and, she, and she was along the ride for it. She was ready to be a wife. And she, I'm thankful that she's remarried to a wonderful man that she's happier than ever. And I, no one's happier for her than I am. I'm, I'm glad that she, because she earned that. She deserved that. Because she was that wife to me when I wasn't that husband to her. That's a tough thing for, for a person to recognize is that the failure of something internal. And much like a lot of these young men that don't get to turn and look at themselves and experience the failure until that kind of thing happens, which is why men struggle so much with long-term breakup and divorces. Because sometimes that's the first time they've had to look in the mirror and say, oh shit, I fucked this up. Or I had this opportunity and didn't see it and didn't see it for what it was worth. I was depressed and hiding it. I was going through new relationships, fully unprepared emotionally, to accept someone else into my world because I hadn't fully accepted my own failure as a husband. So I bring them back. It's not just communicating with another human being, but learning how to comfortably communicate with yourself. Because often the first lie we tell is in the mirror every day and helping them figure out how to navigate that. I think not enough men, young men, boys are getting those kinds of tools. And that's what I try to tell them. I have to leave in like five minutes and I have so many more questions. <laughs> It's so frustrating. Um, can I try to can I try to spitfire them? Yeah, sure. Okay. One is: Have you noticed a decline in socialization among boys, and why do you think that is, and what can we do about it? Uh, yeah, I don't even think that's like a belief based system. I think that's a straight up fact. There's a decrease socialization. Video games, pornography, technology, social media, um, and just people spending less time outside as a society. Yeah. Women aren't outside. Women aren't outside either. If the women aren't outside, why would the men be outside? When they're the reason that the men go outside. <laughs> so, like, 
So I think it's all inter- it's just full. That's a full blown societal issue, not just a man and boys. Okay, so women can just start going outside, and that'll fix yeah, everything. They'll follow we're like the Pied Pipers. Everybody, go outside. Yeah. We're going where you are, and if you're not outside, we're not outside. <laughs> okay, so go outside. Okay, and then how do we? How do we make fatherhood appealing to men? I mean, this was a big part of Richard Reeves' book was like re-engaging men in fatherhood. So how do we do that? How do we make it appealing? Just make it not so expensive to do. Okay. Uh, like one, one uh, which is just general parenting, I think, for, to make motherhood more appealing as well. Like just make it not as expensive to do. Um, I think part of it is also to make marriage more appealing to men. Uh-huh. Um, because the men that are seeking out wanting to be fathers are also seeking wives. Mm-hmm. Um, that those things are usually for men. I can't speak to women. I don't know that that part of it. But for men, those things are usually linked. So I think making marriage more appealing, and part of it is marriage is often viewed, especially among successful men, as something where they only have something to lose and nothing to gain. Um, Which is so ironic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so ironic because, as that book was pointing out, like marriage is actually an institution that really benefits men and has historically mm-hmm. benefited men more so than it's benefited women, and yet we see women more interested in it than men. Because men are thinking about the worst case scenario. If you're a very successful man and mm-hmm. you're young and you have all these da- these dating options that you've mentioned before in this podcast and the, pre- the previous, why would you get married? Like I-, I have friends that are late 20s, early 30s, millionaires. Yeah. And they're just straight up like, why would I get married? What is the appeal of getting married to me right now? If I, if I, can-, I can have a different woman every day of the month, what is the appeal of getting married right now? Because they're not thinking like a 45-year-old. Like most men in that their late thirties, early forties, when they start thinking, "Oh, I should get married now," yeah. they're not thinking like that. So it, to them, it's like, "What's the benefit of getting married? This doesn't work out, and then suddenly I lose half my shit." Yeah. <laughs> like it's like you know. So for them, it's, it's part of it is making marriage more appealing to men. How? <laughs> you just pointed out some yeah. really compelling arguments against it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh dear, like don't think about that. <laughs> Well, I mean, the irony is that women are getting richer, so maybe y'all should hitch your wagons to us. But that's well, just that's, one suggestion. Well, you're seeing more and more of male men getting spousal support and uh-huh. men receiving child support, while also dealing with the family court system is still one of the few areas where a woman is at a great advantage mm-hmm. uh, among men. You have to not just have a lot of money. You have to have an astronomical mm-hmm. amount of money to be even remotely considered for custodial arrangement for your children when this ends. Some of some some rich men aren't getting divorced just because it's it's more costly for them to get divorced than to just sit through an unhappy an unhappy marriage. So those same men that can afford marriage and fatherhood also don't see much incentive to be married, which then de incentivizes them from becoming fathers. I just don't know why they ever. I mean, there was a time when wealthy men were getting married. Was it just because women weren't putting out otherwise? Divorce was more stigmatized, so they were less likely to be left. Oh, so um, that so that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. Talk about. Okay. Yeah, the worst case scenario is being divorced. But if women weren't going to divorce you for mm-hmm. having a whole second family or beating them up every night because the dinner was cold, like like you know the forties and fifties tropes, well then you was like, no yeah, risk. I could get married. Yeah. What was the difference? Yeah. <laughs> and now and now that that women can just leave at any moment, the freedom of that has the unintended consequence of well then why would I even bother getting married because people don't think. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, well, because what's the benefit for what? What do you women? What do women see as the benefit of getting married? For you, I mean, stability through pregnancy and 
uh, raising little ones, but also, I mean, yeah, financial and emotional support and have in companionship. Becoming family, the, yeah. the, the, you know, psychological and social um, change of becoming family and we're going to make a family. Do you think that there are that men in relationships often feel emotionally supported by their partner? Well, I mean, the data says that that's one of the biggest problems when they break up is that they lose their only emotional support. Mm-hmm. But you so and that's the one thing of the list you just mentioned that men benefit from that if they're looking from the, the worst case scenario lens, the only thing worse than not having it at all is having it and losing. It. Uh, mm-hmm. So they'd rather just not have it. Hmm. That's just, that's, so, I, so that's the reason why I asked that question, because you're highlighting all the things that are benefits that are actually benefits. The biggest benefit to men is that, that stability. But if it can be lost so easily, uh-huh. then why have it? Because um, because their fathers raised them to accept risk and go out <laughs> and be okay with failures. <laughs> We've been really wrapped around now. <laughs> I hope that to be true. In 50 years, I hope that that would be too. a true statement. All right, so that we don't just fall off a cliff with this episode and land in the same lake of pessimism that we did last time. Let's <laughs> review some of the tips. <laughs> so it sounds like bolstering, risk-taking, and failure, and uh, ability to cope through failure. Looking at our boys as more than uh, bank statements and really exploring their worldviews, emotional states, whatever the case may be, and basically allowing them to craft their own identity and values alongside yeah. girls. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think one of the low-hanging fruit is also the human engagement part. Even some, Not even just to go mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. Even just talking on the phone. No one talks on the phone anymore. Like just yeah. hearing another human being's voice in conversation. No one does that. Like even, yeah. with this, even with this technological advancement where we can see and hear each other, most people will just text each other. Yeah. Like it's a, I think that any type of human contact connection with something produced by another human being would be beneficial. Going out to eat instead of texting all day or meeting for coffee or having an actual phone conversation where you hear another human being's voice cares about you and wants good for you. Just a a tender space to land would do wonders for so many young Mm -hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so increase that socialization partly by making girls go outside so that the boys will find everyone, them. everyone go outside, go outside and talk. <laughs> I love it. No more participation trophies. You gotta, yeah. Anything else? Anything I missed? I think also what you me? said too of uh of the um not just saying masculine qualities are necessarily toxic or bad, but how can you be competitive and strong and, you know, aggressive without hurting people, you know? Yeah, because I think otherwise you're, so men are in this unique, I'm going to say this quick, men are in this unique position where they are having the feeling that women want the men that they're interested in to act one way and the men that they're not interested in to act a different way. The problem is that the men don't know which one of those that they are most mm. of the time. So well, they're, they're, a lot of women will say like they want to, they'll, they'll want traditional masculine qualities of the man they're trying to date and marry and become father. But the man on the street, don't approach me. Don't talk to me. Mm-hmm. Leave me alone. Don't make this. Un- but if it's a man that you want, please come talk to me. I'm giving you every single in the world to come talk to me. Why are you not coming over here? Because that man doesn't know which one of those men he is. He doesn't know how he's being regarded as the predator or the the asset. So I think that's 
that's also part of it is a, a byproduct of shedding those masculine notions is trying to help a man figure out and help men figure out for themselves what that looks like for them, how it looks to both be masculine and be a person worthy of partnership, friendship. Uh, I also don't think enough men have women as friends, which is a whole other, a whole other mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. I think that's a great summary. Uh, do you mm-hmm. want to plug your organization? Sure. Uh, I, I work with the All Stars Project, uh, headquartered in New York City, but located around the country, New York, New Jersey, Dallas, Chicago, and San Francisco Bay Area. Our mission is to uh, develop young people from poor and underserved communities through the developmental power of performance in partnership with caring adults. Um, uh, AllStarsProject.org, if you want to find out more about our organization. Uh, if you ever want to find a way to be proactively involved in helping shape the next generation of young people, this is a great way to do so. And we, we always, we are largely a volunteer operation. So we're always looking for people to try to help out in any possible way. So allstarsproject.org. Awesome. And it's Jared Glenn. You, we need to look out for your romance novel when it is time. So, (laughs) so let us know when that's out. Yeah. Yeah, If you follow me on, on do right and fear nothing on Instagram, that's where you'll hear all the updates about when projects are coming out, when you can see one of my plays, when you can read my book and the book to follow, because I'm working on another one. So yeah, you want to keep up with me is do right and fear nothing on Instagram. Okay, little helpers. Mm -hmm. If you thought that this was a helpful conversation, give us that five-star rating and go hit grass. By accessing this podcast, I acknowledge that the hosts of this podcast make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast and any and all content or services available on or through this podcast are provided for general, non-commercial informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medical or any other professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment and should not be considered or used as a substitute for the independent professional judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment of a duly licensed and qualified healthcare provider. In case of a medical emergency, you should immediately call 911. The hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement.